Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. T. Corrigesson Boyle is the author of 28 books of fiction, including Descent of Man, Water Music, World's End, which won the Penn Faulkner Prize, The Road to Wellville, Drop City, Talk Talk, The Women, T.C. Boyle's Stories, The Relive Box, and Outside Looking In. His work has been translated into more than two dozen languages, and his fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, the Atlantic Monthly, the Paris Review, McSweeney's, and many other publications. Since 1978, he has been a member of the English Department at the University of Southern California, where he is a distinguished professor of English. He currently lives near Santa Barbara with his wife and three children. Okay, cool. Well, Tom, it's great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. I really appreciate your time. And, My pleasure, uh, David. It's good to see you. Glad to have you. Uh, so we always start out the interviews by talking about stories in your childhood and your your formative years. Um, so I was wondering if you can think of any ways that, you know, stories or storytellers really played a part in your growing up. More in my uh, uh, you know, late childhood and early teen years when I developed my group of core friends who are still my friends to this day. I grew up in uh, Northern Westchester near, near Peekskill and uh, um, I sort of gravitated toward all the kids who were kind of wise guys and disaffected, but very bright. And we had a kind of competition, we still do, as to wit. I mean, the, our highest uh, oh, icon in life was, was the wittiest, person and the wittiest thing. And, and, you know, our conversations would revolve around uh, constantly trying to outdo each other and be funnier and funnier and funnier. So that involved storytelling, of course, and those sessions would become stories in themselves. You may notice that my first book, Water Music, is dedicated to the members of the Raconteurs Club. And uh, that didn't actually exist, but that's what I called our little circle of storytellers, bullshitters. <laughs> basically so can you remember like what what those stories were like no no entirely spontaneous you know and we were just teen guys you know hoping to get laid and uh, have a life like everybody else and doing destructive and crazy things like everybody else and uh, um, encouraging each other uh, and the stories would be spontaneous in the moment and routines of course you develop routines, which I've always loved. A shtick. I've always loved a shtick. Uh, I mean, look at my uh, my Twitter today. It's it's insistently uh, shtick oriented. <laughs> <laughs> what about even earlier though? Like when you were? Wow, that's a nice big coffee. Um, David, uh, uh, I don't know about it in New York, but it, uh, California law prohibits me specifically from drinking coffee because. 
coffee uh, so fuels me that I become a mass murderer. It's just tea. Got it. Okay. <laughs> I burn with a, a high flame inside and I don't need any more stimulation. The tea is for uh, getting me through work each day and sparking me a little bit. And what is that? Coffee? Ice, ice coffee. Ah, well, good, good. Summer's coming on. Right. Um, but going back even a little further, I mean, do you remember anything about stories from your childhood? Well, of course. Uh, I was a um, hyperactive kid. We didn't have such things as ADD in those days, but I must have driven my parents insane, uh, bouncing off the walls. And so uh, I didn't really do very well in the beginning of school. So my mother is the one who taught me to read quite patiently, night after night. Uh, uh, so her voice is the voice I always hear. And this is why I love to give public readings because I want to project that voice and that first voice that we all hear when we're learning to read mm. from parents. Uh, I remember um, our local paper, the Peaceful Evening Star, in the month before Christmas, each day would have a story that would serialize and come in on Christmas and had a little illustration. And that fascinated me and she would read me that. Uh, a little later on, I began to read on my own and I was attracted to animal stories, which is no surprise for those who know my work. Uh, and uh, our school was uh, directly across the street and it had a little library. And I began to take books out of the library and uh, uh, wonderful stories about uh, animals. Uh, also at that time, of course, there were comic books and I never really cared for the superheroes and still don't. In fact, I can't go to the movies in the summertime because it's nothing but superheroes. Uh, uh, I did love the story oriented ones like Classics Illustrated, you know, my first experience of uh, you know, the Odyssey and things like that. Um, and the Donald Duck uh, comic books. Um, and, and later in my life, I met Herb Trimpey, the guy who invented the Hulk, or drew the Hulk, ah. drew the Hulk. And we talked about comics. And I said, well, Herb, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, I never read that stuff. And he said, uh, what did you read? I said, well, Donald Dawkins. Well, they were famous for their stories, storytelling. Mm. So there was all that going on in my, uh, in my young days. You talked about your mother's voice and how, you know, that was a real early embodiment of story for you. I mean, is telling your stories uh, out, out loud, is that still really important to you? Is that something you do as you write? Yes, yes. Uh, the, the, the beat and language of the story is all important to me. Uh, every sentence and the beauty of the sentence is what is the primary driver for my writing. Uh, aside from, of course, trying to tell a story, but you must tell it in a very, very beautiful way. And this is what I try to do. I always listen to music. I've never written anything without music playing. Hmm. And uh, if I've progressed on something in a given day, I will ask my wife to listen to it and read it aloud to her because it gives me a sense of the beat. And you know, it's, it's ironic in that uh, I'm quite popular in uh, German translation, for instance, and in, in, in French as well. Uh, and I'm so happy about that. And yet, 
especially the French, are not getting the original. They're not getting the beat of the original. Uh, huh. in German, it's different because so many of the Germans read English and many of them will read uh, both the German and the English edition. Great. Uh, I wish I could do that. But um, uh, the original and the way it plays uh, is so important to me, which, by the way, is why I love to listen to my heroes read. Uh, there are tapes of both Cheever and Updike reading their stories aloud. Neither one is a very good reader. Uh, Cheever is awful. Uh, he doesn't pause for the jokes or the laughter or anything else. He just plows ahead. Updike is a little better, but also not a really great performer. But I want to hear their voice and their inflection, and I'm fascinated by this. Right. Who, uh, who would you say is a really good vocal storyteller that you've heard or who inspired you? I don't know. I can't say right now. Oh, you know, uh, one of the greatest is Robert Cooper, one of my early heroes. Uh, uh -huh. I had a chance to hear Bob uh, go, go and hear him. He's, uh, he's astonishing. He gets into his role. Uh, Stanley Elkin. Stanley Elkin was the greatest. He was, uh, he was just, he would, uh, I've said this before, uh, actually I've written about it. We students learned not to sit within the first four or five rows because of the flying spittle as Stanley worked himself into this actor's rage. But yeah, he really lived, lived the stories. And, uh, you know, it's, it's odd that writers in our time have been asked to perform and be performers because of course the largest part of a writer is this introverted side you know lock away and uh, the the story exists on the page and there's no reason whatsoever for us to be there interpreting it orally for anybody right but certain of us used to sing in a rock and roll band and we want to be on stage and we want to <laughs> and knock the audiences dead um my one of my best moments in doing this over all these years is, you know, you know me very well, David, you know, in the beginning, uh, I was much more interested in design and idea than in character. And I was much more interested in the absurd uh, kind of stories and, uh, me you know, metafiction and so on. But under the influence of people like Ray Carver, who became a good friend, and, uh, and to a degree Cheever and others over the years, I expanded my range. And I also uh, as you see, look in my collected stories, you'll see that, uh, you know, I often will write also a, a straightforward, realistic, dramatic story. And so I wrote a story called Chicxulub, I guess, in the early 90s, early 90s, maybe, I don't remember exactly. Uh, and it's a very grueling first person narrative of a father uh, and mother, they're getting ready to go to bed and their teenage daughter is out and they get a phone call that she has been hit by a car and is in the hospital and they have to go and, and deal with that. This story, this story is a killer. It is so grim and tense, you know? And I read it as the father in the first person. And uh, it, one of the first times I read it was the Miami Book Fair before it became such a huge thing. And it was a small venue and there were only maybe 30 people in a, in a small room. And about midway through, one of those 30 people began to sob. And it was horrifying absolutely horrifying. Everybody is aware of it. Everybody's horrified. I'm horrified. You know, I want to stop and say, it's only fiction, but it happened to her, you know, and here she was sobbing. Even better. 
as I progressed as an actor, um, I've read this story many times to many audiences, including a huge audience in uh, arts and lectures in San Francisco, 1500 people, whatever it is, in the dark auditorium. I can't see them, they're there. I, you can feel them. And there's a point in that story at which no one moved or breathed. You know, you go to any concert, anything, there's people shuffle their chair, they sneeze, they, whatever, nothing. It's just me looking into the blackness, David, giving them this horrific thing. And I felt what actors must feel. Oh man, did I have them. The power of that was so great. And that's something that you don't get when you're delivered on the page. You know, maybe you're, you know, especially in this, this age of social media, I'm in contact with the fans and we talk about it and so on. But it's not the same thing. It's not knowing what the effect is. So performing is a whole different thing for me and I really enjoy it. And it goes back to what you're talking about here, the power of storytelling, remembering that originally we had uh, rhyming poetry and songs in order so that we could remember the, the, uh, the history of our tribe uh, and the stories that we tell and tell them aloud. Around the campfire while roasting wildebeest. <laughs> in the days before TV. Yeah, wow. Or even radio. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we talk about Dickens and, uh, you know, he was he's my role model as far as having a writer's life. And not only did he sell books, but he went on tour and uh, he was the Rolling Stones and the movie theater and everything else rolled into one. My God. <laughs> <laughs> He was the only show in town and he milked it. You also came from uh, an area, you know, a part of New York State that is really rich in stories and you've, you've mined that in World's End. I mean, have you thought any more about how living in that particular geography maybe may help to make you a storyteller? I don't know about that. Uh, I think it was more what we talked about earlier, you know, it, uh, I think the, most of my friends I grew up with are Jewish and the, the Jewish sense of humor is like the Irish sense of humor, I think, to a degree in that um, it's, it's, it, we know everything is fucked and now we're gonna tell jokes about it, you know? <laughs> I think that, that more than anything else. However, regional things are interesting uh, in writing World's End. That was my homage to the storytelling of the Hudson Valley and the Dutch times and the history of it and particularly of Washington Irving, who inspired that book. Um, when I was a student at Iowa uh, and I'd finished my PhD, I was a finalist for a professorship, uh, assistant professorship at three different universities. Uh, one, which I was really keen on because I was then in the Midwest was the University of Minnesota, a place I love. Uh, another was, uh, uh, in Salt Lake City, and the other was in LA, uh, in USC. Uh, as it turned out, USC offered me the job and I've made my life on the West Coast. So I'm sort of a regional California writer at this point. I would never have written the Tortilla Curtain, for instance, had I gone to Minnesota. Maybe I would have written about the uh, prejudice against the Swedes when they came over as immigrants, but it's not the same thing. So my, um, or the Channel Islands books that I've written and all of this stuff. So many of the books are set in California, the Drop City uh, until they go to Alaska is California. So yeah, the, the regional thing, um, 
is, is mysterious and powerful for me. Uh, I'm not um, a globetrotter, except of course for the eternal uh, book tours. Uh, I like to be located in a place. It's important to me to have a life in a village where, as where I live now, it grounds me in a, in a way. Uh, and yes, you, you, you could look at all the stories I've written and uh, novels, and they're set all over the world. They're set everywhere. You know, okay, great. But basically, uh, California has spoken to me these last years, as New York had spoken to me before. In fact, you know, if you look at the first couple of books of stories, um, stories that could be set anywhere, there's a guy in an apartment that he's talking, you know, they were usually set in New York. Now they're usually set in LA, you know, just the way it is. I mean, do you remember the point at which you started to feel or somebody encouraged you to think that you could be a writer, that you could really make a living as a storyteller? I didn't think in terms of making a living. Uh, don't forget, David, I am a hippie. <laughs> and hippies, one of my best friends, by the way, is still in New York, is a glassblower. He still has hair down, down his back and he... He's a glassblower. I think I met him once, yeah. You may have met him. Uh, John Gilby, he's become quite famous and, and wealthy as a result of it. But who knew? We didn't do it because we were going to make money. We didn't care about that. That's what the bourgeoisie did. You know, we didn't care about that. We cared about art uh, and music, uh, literature and art. That's it. That's all we cared about. So uh, um, it's been a happy, happy, happy accident that I found what I could do and what I love to do, and that I have been rewarded for it to the degree at which I could at least uh, pay my bills and raise my children. Uh, I'm delighted. I'm absolutely delighted by that. Uh, if you ask me about my origins as a writer, uh, one of the reasons that I loved to teach creative writing and did it for all those years is to give back what was given to me. I've had great mentors and uh, uh, to go to a liberal arts school and find out what you can do is a kind of miracle. So I went to SUNY Potsdam, State University of New York at Potsdam as an undergrad uh, because it was the music school. I want to be a musician. And uh, when I got there, I flunked my audition. I could play the living hell out of my instrument, which was the saxophone. Uh, I could play it upside down. I could sight transpose. I could, I could do anything. But I really didn't have a feel rhythmically for the music they expected us to play, you know, classical music. Um, I found myself then in Potsdam at a liberal arts college having to declare a major. And so I said history. I always loved history, uh, as you can see from my novels. And in the second year, I went into a class of the American short story and discovered Flannery O'Connor. And I said, okay, I'm gonna be a double major history in English. And in the third year, I blundered into a creative writing classroom with Krishnavad. And uh, that's when I discovered my metier and I burned with it ever since. Um, I write about it humorously. And you can find it on my website, uh, uh, This little uh, essay called This Monkey, My Back, in which I talk about this compulsion to write and create art, which is like using heroin, something I also know something about. 
uh, you get this rush when you inject it and you have this rush when you finish a story. It's the, this, the satisfaction and the, it just bursts through your body and it's so great. But as with any addiction, <laughs> it soon wears off and you have to do it again and again and again. It's a compulsion. I've often described this writing as an obsessive compulsive disorder, but happily it gives me something to do all day long. And I've never I found was wondering, David, I what's that? Say, I've never found the end of it yet. So, you know, I have my PhD, I'm a professor, et cetera. Um, and yes, I, 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 I talk like this with, with the press. Uh, uh, I talk about politics, uh, you know, uh, the environment, but I don't want to give speeches. I don't want to write essays. I just want to do fiction because it thrills me and I never know what it is. Just before we talk today, I'm, you know, page 150 of the next novel. I'm just feeling my way and discovering it and seeing the sentences come together. I have no idea. Well, I have some idea, but I don't really know what it will be until it happens. And this is so exciting. Uh, this is why the excitement of art and why I only wanted to be an artist. And which I tried to communicate to my students. Uh, one of the joys at USC was uh, having some of the incredibly brilliant and talented people from the film school casually take a creative writing course. Mm -hmm. I could uh, seduce them into creative writing because in the film school, of course, you're working in an industry and you have a set form of how to write your screenplay and what to do and so on. With me, it's complete freedom. There are no rules. You do whatever motivates you. And here it is, and we'll, we'll uh, give you an impression of it, an interpretation, period. That's it, as far as it goes. Uh, that freedom uh, is what I've lived with all my life. I mean, do you, do you know or can you define in any way what it is that triggers that need to make a story out of something? When something becomes goes from being just a series of incidents to a story? I think it's just the desire that our species has for communication. We think some, something, see something, make something, and we want to show it to other people because we want feedback, we want communication, we want them to think and feel and show us something too. I think that's the essence of, of it. And um, there's also the question, of the preposterous universe we live in that has no reason, whereas we are a species that knows reason and knows science and wants reason. There is no reason for anything. And art is a way of addressing that void, the only way of addressing that void. Um, and again, I wish my talent had lain in, uh, in music more than in literature because music is the purest art. It is a pure opening of the soul and the unconscious. 99% of what you're doing when you're playing is purely opening your soul. And I would say with writing, it's more like 10%, okay? Uh, <laughs> is in control, though no, maybe 90% is opening your soul. 10% is controlling. With music, maybe 1% is controlling. You don't even know what you're doing. And you're a writer, you know, when, when you're in the throes of composition, you're out of the world and that's 
an important thing. Uh, my last book, uh, Outside Looking In, which is regarding uh, human consciousness and its uh, uh, manipulation by uh, LSD and other drugs and so on. Well, what is human consciousness? It's a burden. It's an incredible burden to us, which is why we need stories and why we need each other and why we need drugs, alcohol, uh, some way of getting out of our own selves. That's the burden that we live with. And the burden is compounded by the fact that we are the only conscious species that knows of our own death and the, own, our, the futility of everything in life. So art is a way of trying to assuage that or address it or wonder about it. And this is why I do it. I've never written any story or book thinking, wow, this will sell. I never thought about that. I never cared about that. I still don't. Hmm. I just think this is fascinating. I wonder what it means. And I never know what anything means unless I make a story out of it. I mean, you talked about teaching at USC. Uh, did you ultimately come to feel that this impulse to tell stories and this, you know, I, I hesitate, I don't know, a gift or whatever, is that something that can be taught? Um, the gift is pretty much universal. And the thing that amazed me uh, about my students is how brilliant they are, uh, how deep that gift goes. I'm just a coach to kind of nudge them and appraise them and, and appraise them, you know? Um, but this gift is, uh, is universal. Um, you can't teach someone to be a great artist unless they have the genetic makeup and the gift to be a great artist, but you can make them comfortable and demonstrate to them that artists exist and can continue to exist and that you too can be an artist, which is how I got going. And so you need a mentor and you need some, some interpretation of what you're doing and some uh, encouragement of what you're doing. Did, um, do you feel like, are you the kind of person who feels like um, that the perseverance of writing every day and really driving yourself to sit there a certain amount of time is what creates, what brings the creativity? Or do you feel that you really need to wait for the mood to to write something. I have to work all the time. I work seven days a week, all my life. That's what I do. That's my life. Uh, I need that. I need that as a, uh, as a structure in my life. But uh, all uh, books of advice from writers are completely useless or how to write or anything else because all that matters is how you address it yourself. You could have inspiration. You'd be a writer who has inspiration for 10 minutes every night at midnight and, and write great stuff. You could be a writer who writes on the subway. You could write, be a writer who writes upside down underwater. It doesn't really matter. I just find something that you're comfortable with. For me, yeah, particularly with a novel, it's good to stay with it every day. Uh, because of the enormous amount of touring I've had to do over the years, Wait, by the way, which is over now, because not only because of the pandemic, but I don't think there'll be much touring anymore because we have this forum and other forums. Um, uh, and people don't even attend concerts or anything anymore. Maybe they will once this is over, I don't know. 
But anyway, uh, all of that have, uh, is, a, is a kind of sidelight to, to what I'm doing and it does interfere with it. Uh, so that no novel since Ribbon Rock, which is late nineties that I've written has been written continuously through in a block of a full year or in that case, 14 months without having to go off for a month on tour somewhere from the previous book. It just worked out that way. So mm. I'm used to being interrupted uh, at some point with, with each book because of uh, touring. You know, curiously, because of the pandemic, the one that I'm just writing now called Blue Skies, which is maybe a third to a half done, uh, it may be that I will be able to write this without having to do any touring. So far, my have talk, uh, talk to me is coming out in the, in the fall from Echo at HarperCollins. And so far, they're not booking any live engagements because they're hedging their bets. I bet, mm -hmm. and I think, that we will be back to public performance in the fall. But in this case, I certainly won't have to make a tour. How do you feel about um, the idea of stories that are found versus stories that you sort of create from your imagination? I mean, uh, I know some writers feel like they want to have the whole story handed to them and they just want to make it beautiful. Um, but how do you feel about that? Do you have any sense of that? I know, for example, with and it's an easy okay. way. It's a great way to do it, and it's an easy way to do it. I think the stories that have come to me most easily are ones in which I don't have to research anything or think about it. I just have an experience and I write about it. But I'm not an autobiographical writer for the most part. There are certain stories like Greasy Lake or Up Against the Wall and stories like that that are obviously uh, coming from my own experience, although they are stories and they are shaped as stories and incidents in them didn't necessarily happen uh, like that. But those are the stories that are, uh, that are the most comfortable and easiest to write. On the other hand, uh, I write every kind of story and I love stories in this uh, sort of uh, magical realist mode, a kind of Garcia Marquesian, uh, Calvino sort of mode. I just love that voice of the folktale, you know? I just love them. So you'll always see stories like that in, in my collections, like the five pound burrito, for instance, or uh, swept away at these stories. I love them also. They come to me quite easily. With the novels, most of them involve some research as a subject in order to get me thinking about this particular subject. So for instance, talk to me is something that has impressed me for many years and fascinated me. This is a novel about uh, the experiments to teach apes our language in the 70s and 80s. I know other people have done this and been there, but I don't really care. Uh, my first book of stories is called Descent of Men. And the first story is, comes from when I was a student in the 70s, I discovered that we were having these experiments. And so I wrote a, a really uh, madcap, uh, surreal story about a female researcher, a brilliant young ape and her boyfriend. Uh, and this novel takes that kind of love triangle, but in a much less uh, bizarre way uh, and dramatizes it. And I do believe that this one in its climax will tear your heart out. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> 
you be forewarned. <laughs> and also, um, well, David, I, uh, I um, for the experiment of it, uh, alternate chapters are written from the point of view of the ape himself, which was a lot of fun. Oh, it was fun to do that. Okay. I mean, I wonder also, you know, as, as someone who's become a public figure, um, you've become the subject of this interview. You sort of become the subject of other people's stories. How do you feel about that experience? Has it changed your own view about stories? I don't know about it so much because um, anything I don't want to know about, I just shut the door. I don't know. I don't, I don't look myself up on the internet and see what people are saying. I don't really care. And in, far, you know, in the beginning, I would read the reviews. Now, I don't read the reviews because they upset me, whether even good or bad, they upset me. Uh, so aside from, you know, some, if someone will say, uh, my publisher will say, hey, you, this review was really great. Maybe I would read that and feel, gee, you know, I'm doing something good. But uh, really, I don't want to know. I really don't want to know about that at all. I don't want it to influence me in any way. You know, and also uh, when a book comes out and, you know, reviews are good and they're selecting quotes of how brilliant you are and wonderful and so on, it makes you think, well, shit, maybe I should do that again. And meanwhile, you're, you know, two thirds into the next one. So it's all <laughs> kind of confusing. Um, uh, I think when I was younger, of course, I cared more about all of that. Uh, you know, public image and uh, you know, projecting my charisma on the crowds and uh, doing all the interviews and so on. Now, um, I've been there, done that. And uh, I, uh, I love to do press. I love to talk about my books. The best uh, reviews and interviews are ones in which we're talking as we are talking now. Uh, you know, the best review isn't necessarily, this guy's a genius, is the greatest book, run out and buy it. That's good. But ones that dig in interpretively to what you're doing, because that is a kind of dialogue between you and the critic uh, to see what you've done. You don't even know what you've done to, to a degree. I mean, I could write a thesis on my own story, but other people have other feelings and see other, other values in it. So that process of, of reviewing and interviewing is, is quite stimulating and quite good, but otherwise, being a public figure and whatever is being said about me, I don't want to know. I mean, one thing you brought up before was the superheroes and uh, the fact that you were turned off by the superhero movies. Um, but clearly, you know, your books do have heroes or, or certainly central figures. Um, do you think that a- I wrote a book called The Human Fly about a, a superhero. But he's not really a superhero. He's, he's a wannabe. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, do you think that do stories, do books need heroes? That's a great question. Uh, don't forget, one of my collections is called Without a Hero. Um, I like stories that have heroes, and I like stories in which everything turns out well in the end. Unfortunately, I don't write very many of them. I'm much more interested in real people who are fucked up in various ways. And also, of course, in the larger questions of evolution and uh, 
and uh, ontology and just what we're doing here on this planet as animals on this planet and biological issues. I write more and more about this and ecological issues is what absorbs me. Uh, on a, a, and then the characters, of course, play against that as we all do, as we have to play against being an animal in this world and being subject to all the ills of this world uh, um, and worrying about it, you know, worrying about what, what it means and where it's going and, you know, I'm sure that every generation, as they age, they have these feelings of uselessness and so on. Uh, but in our time, it's even worse because not only do we have to face our personal extinction, we're looking at the extinction of our species. That's what's gonna happen. That's happening, I think. <laughs> I don't think it's gonna be that far in the future. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the things that motivated my new book, which is called Blue Skies, is by reading about the uh, German um, entomological societies, amateur societies, who go out and collect insects, you know, and they discovered the startling decline in flying insects. And this is worldwide, you know, insect populations worldwide of flying insects have plummeted. Well, what does this mean? Why is this? What about the food chain? What are we going to eat? You know, all of this stuff uh, is staggering to, to even think about. And so I have to try to make a story about it and make it funny, of course, but still try to figure out uh, what it means. I mean, another aspect of society today um, is, you know, the almost hyperactive sharing of stories, you know, we're all constantly putting out these stories to each other. I mean, on social media, you know, whether it's an article you share or something about yourself, you know, um, it always reminds me of that Norman Mailer book called Advertisements for Myself. Um, what do you think that this is sort of doing to the society, you know, through the stories that we sort of selectively tell each other um, in, in an in almost, you know, 24 seven way. To a degree, I think it's good for people because they're exerting their individuality and saying, look, I'm important, I'm alive. Uh, here I am, this is what I like. I think that's fine. Uh, it, it's different from making art though, which requires talent and an investment of time and uh, a spark of ideas and so on and so on. Um, until five years ago, when I switched publishers to Echo, I had never participated in any social media, aside from my own webpage, which my son created when he was in high school. So it's been going since 1999. And by the way, before the social media came along, it was a big deal. You know, you want to talk about literature, they would come to my site. Now it's been superseded by all the rest of this, Facebook and so on. Uh, so they gave me a Twitter account and I love Twitter and I'm, I'm active on it, but only in my own uh, fan base, only with my own fan base. Uh, and I can control that uh, as I might control a classroom, for instance. Uh, I'm not interested in going into the main uh, arena, uh, public arena and say, fuck you and, and back and forth. And who needs that? I don't need that. So mine is very a very benign and amusing presence. Uh, uh, 
I always, from the beginning, would take a photo and make a comment. And this is my day, and this is what I'm doing, and this is what I'm thinking, and this is what I'm reading, and so on. And it's very whimsical and amusing. Uh, and it does engage me. It engages me. Uh, I but I have a regular time to do all of this. So my fans know that uh, before I get to work in the morning, I will dedicate some time to responding to them. And then they're going to have a long drive until the next day. But meanwhile, wherever I'm going, whatever I'm doing that motivates me, I will photograph something and, and make a comment. Uh, and what's great about it for me is I'm a nature boy. I'm outside all the time and I'm seeing things. And it enables me to capture little moments that we see and enjoy and walk right by. And so often uh, the fans will then tweet me back their little photos that, that they've taken of, of nature and so on, and books <laughs> and music. And they turn me on, I turn them on. It's a lot of fun, it's good. Um, uh, there are a lot of hours in the day. I don't mind giving up uh, some time to do this, but it's not an obsession. And I certainly won't check it or look at it until tomorrow morning because in order to produce 30 books and I'm working on the 31st now, it's pedal to the metal. It's gotta be your obsession. And I don't want anything to interfere with that. So, you know, looking at your own, you know, you've had this, incredibly prolific career. Uh, you've written about so many different things. Um, do you see any kind of an arc in the, the story of your own writing and, and where that's gonna go, where you want that to go? Or are you just taking it one book at a time and that's, that's all you that, wanna do? We talked about it earlier in this conversation. Uh, uh, I write in many modes. I don't want to be pinned down. Uh, I think that I can write about any subject or anything that interests me in any mode. And that is very stimulating creatively. So that has helped me uh, have this career and, and keep myself interested. Uh, more and more though, again, as we said earlier, uh, I see myself as writing about our place as animals on this planet in an ecological way and trying to get at you know, the, the great questions of human life uh, in a more biological, ecological way, because that's what fascinates me. Uh, if it weren't for math, I might have been perfectly happy to be a field biologist, for instance. Uh, I'm fascinated by the outdoors, by creatures, but that was not to be. Uh, still, I see that interest emerging in my books. and. Um, you know, way ahead of the loop. Everybody says, oh, well, you know, Friend of the Earth was the year 2000. It's about global warming, a pandemic, uh, uh, extinction, uh, species loss, etc. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've been keeping my eyes open, you know, and now I'm trying to project that projected to 2026 from 2000. Now I'm hoping, I don't know if it will happen in this book, to project again into the future uh, to see what might lie ahead. Well, it's been really great talking to you, Tom. I really appreciate your time today and uh, your insight. Good, David. Uh, we haven't had a drink together in many years. Let's do that next time uh, I'm in New York. If, uh, if I am, if I am, we'll see. I don't think on this tour that there will be any live movement. Mm -hmm. But we 
You'll see. It's the end of September. Uh, and we'll see. If I am, we, we definitely must. Get okay. That sounds great. All right, Tom, take it easy. Have fun, David. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you soon. Yep. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.